worship you in our main service, and uh, may we glorify you in all we do. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Alright, so when you think about eternity, the future, we've talked about kind of the future. The here and now future, but so what are you, what are you looking forward to after... After we leave our bodies, like we are glorified, we are experiencing the new heavens and the new earth and what that looks like. And I think that's probably a question that it's like, I don't know. What, what, what do I look forward to? But for those that maybe have given a thought uh, or even think, think what you look forward to, what are, what are some things that you may be looking forward to? No sin. It's a good one. It's a good one. What else? Struggle. Inner struggle. Inner struggle. To uh, not have that. No, it's like uh, uh, like Paul says: things I like to do, I don't do. Things I don't want to do, I do. Yeah. Struggle he had. Something to struggle every day. Yeah. Living in the world like Okay. So, no sin, no struggles. I'm battling peace. We'll give more of a panoramic perspective again. We'll see more. Physically, or maybe hard, maybe on what he was talking about, just kind of you know things that things that you did, you don't, you thought you would like to know, perhaps you just don't. And probably a lot of the things that we talk about, like that occupy our time now, would be nice. What's that? No sickness. That'd be nice. Glorified the way he deserves, you know. I mean, his glory is what we ought to be about, but it's usually more about me than about the Lord's glory. So, in that day, every knee will bow, he'll be glorified, he'll be lifted up. And we just get glimpses of it right now. I think that, you know, right then it'll be like a, a full understanding. And so that's what I was missing. You know, that was, that's what it was about. We've seen people that you wonder if they were saved or not. Mm-hmm. Or maybe if you, uh, I don't know, like my, my father died when I was four. Mm-hmm. So it's, I don't think he was a believer. But then there are going to be people that I think will surprise us. But then also people you expect to be there won't be there. <laughs> yeah. So that, the reunion with believers uh, from everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Or that may not even be an issue, right? And I think it's, those are things, I mean, that, that was a big one, you know. I had we have a similar similar background on that, that set. I was very, at a young age, concerned about my father, where he was, which is really what drew me to the Lord, because it was like, well, let's not worry about him. Let's worry about you. Um, but I, I have that same thought, thought too. So in these last kind of couple chapters, that's, that's what I, I hope. We'll just start, start maybe having some questions. Uh, things that we'll, you know, we haven't thought about. Um, so I saw uh, Glenn playing basketball uh, earlier in the week, and he was like, the intermediate state. You know, we talked about that last week a little bit. Uh, just like, yeah, what happens before the new heavens and the new earth, like, you know, we just sometimes don't give give thought to that. And again, we don't want to be preoccupied with those things because they're just questions we, or answers we just don't have. But they they're questions that get brought up that you know sometimes we don't think about. And so, to drive us to that, I want to also have a step back and say, well, why why should we be thinking in those terms at times? So last week we looked at the end of Revelation twenty, um, and saw that. You know, after Satan was finally defeated, uh, and before the new heavens and the earth are made, and that's what we'll get to this week, right? All of the dead will be judged before the, the great white throne of Christ, before these books that were open with their deeds in them to be used as confirmation that eternal punishment is the proper sentence. And so we, we spent our time kind of thinking about those things. And as we saw that vision, right? Again, of like, in my mind, where everything, you know, the heavens and the earth, like, scattered away, fled away. Um, the great white throne is, is there with books open. 
and people there that are being judged, like how long maybe that took or how long that occupied John's vision before kind of the next thing came into view. And that's where we are at the beginning of chapter 21 today. And so John writes in Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. So John has this, you know, again, new vision coming into sight, one one of something he's he's never seen, but he recognizes. And so we see a, a new heaven and a new earth and a new city. What it what isn't there? Kind of talked about that last week a little bit. What was no more? Was that? Yeah. So, well, the end. The end of verse verse one. What does it say? No sea. No sea. Yeah, the sea was no more. Right. We talked about my surfer friend <laughs> who lamented. You know, there is no sea. So, um, but what is what? You know, again, why why do we why do we see that that idea of the sea? Well, like we touched on last week, that at least particularly in that time was always thought as a kind of a scary place. Yeah. Unknown, the, the monsters of the deep. Uh, if you ever drift too far away from the shore, even today, it starts getting scary. <laughs> you can barely even, and you're still inside of the land. Yeah, that's it. Part of the first two. Since I don't think they were the sea when he first created the heaven, the earth, and absolutely, God just opened that uh, having the rain and opened the earth and, and the flood, and I think. It was just part of the curse, part of the uh, God's uh, curse of sin. Yeah. And I think maybe the sea is just part of that. There's none of that no more. Well, what is and what is what does the sea? I mean, cause like on on the earth? I mean, I guess there's how do I say this? What what does the sea do for like all the people groups in well, the in the world? Well, there was that. Yeah, literally. <laughs> so, but right now, uh, yeah. Exactly, yeah. So kind of the sea kind of separates. And so there is like, you know, that, that necessity. So the purpose, right, that we just said that God had for the sea, um, is, is no longer needed. So, uh, so we'll, we'll get back to, it's not, it doesn't mean there's no water. Uh, but, but what does that look like? What's the idea of the sea? But this is kind of, again, the, the, this, what is seen is the new heavens and a new earth. And, um, you know, n- neither of those are described in detail, but he ca- he sees a new city uh, coming down. Um, do you guys have like a mental picture in your mind when we see like this the sea the city was um, uh, what's that was coming down out of heaven? You know, I kind of think is it you know what's what's it looking like? Is it uh, pieces that are coming down and then forming, or is it the whole city like being drawn down? You know, like a something on stage uh, at a performance. I don't know. Anyway, you probably conjure in your mind something that's, that's happening, but we'll, we'll get to what um, the city looks like uh, a little bit more in detail later. But how does John describe the city? There at the beginning of Revelation 21. Holy. Okay. Describes it as, as holy, which is kind of interesting to think about, you know, when you, you know, naming a, a, describing a city as such. What else is, is, how does he describe the city? Okay. New. What's that? Jerusalem 2.0. Um, so we've got this idea, right, that there's a recognition that this is Jerusalem. Um, however, he recognizes that, that understanding of, uh, what that is, we'll see that later on in just, you know, 
just a little bit today. Um, but how does, how, how else is, is he described? What's the imagery that, uh, he uses at the end of verse two? Yeah. So a city prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Um, that's probably like an image for you husbands, you know, depending on how back you have to think, right? Of like, what's the picture of, of the bride adorned for her husband? So, right, typically, typically you, right, the bride and the groom were, were separated until like, when's the, what's the first image you see of your bride to be? Like, it's gonna happen is she's dressed and ready to come for the ceremony that is about to take place. And so if you guys just pause for a minute, maybe husbands like close your eyes, maybe wives, you know, remember what you were wearing. <laughs> um, and just the consummation of really all that the Lord has been doing in redemptive history. Every, it's the, the church, the Old Testament saints, tribulation saints, finally gathered together. No more, you know, fragmented, you know, view of how the Lord has, you know, uh, unfolded redemptive history. It, this is it. Yeah. We're at the wedding now. Yeah. And so, and, and again, what's, what's that kind of idea, right? I think there's like this, this understanding, like the city that he sees in his, in, is kind of like, even as a witness, right? So the idea is, you know, if you think as husbands, thinking about your bride, but even though being a part of the ceremony, when you see the bride and then about to um, walk down the aisle and that whole ceremony together, there is just like this time of joy and excitement and all the preparations and all the things like it's going to be this moment that we've been waiting for about to happen. And so, yeah, all of those things that have been that separation and then even the preparations <clears throat> are coming to a head. So it's just beautiful imagery that he uses to kind of describe that, which is interesting, right? I see a new heavens and a new earth and this city descending from heaven as a bride adorned for like the bride, she's dressed in white. So usually we think, oh she's beautiful and purity. Yes. And then we see maybe the city as pure. Yeah, and we're, yeah, and exactly, and that's what we'll see, uh, and just, just, uh, in the next paragraph, we'll see, again, what that description is and what that looks like. And so that, that is, is exactly right. A great, you know, again, um, image that John puts in our minds for what we can understand. And so he can't really infer anything about its purpose just yet, just seeing these things come into view, but, you know, a voice does, right? And so how does the voice from the throne describe what this place is to be? The dwelling place of God with man. Yeah. So the dwelling place of God with man. And then what's the next description? He will dwell with them and they'll be his people. Okay. And he will be their God, right? And so... Um, it's almost interesting, like, not that the people will dwell with God, you know, the way that it's described is that God will dwell with man. Um, the way that it was, you know, intended to be, but over so many, you know, because of sin, because of separation, that just cannot happen. And that idea is spoken of several times, um, especially by the prophets. And so I'll read just a few verses to kind of bring that idea back into to view. You know, Jeremiah 31, we talk particularly about the new covenant. Um, uh, in verse 33, he says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So again, promise to Israel um, through the prophets about what that would look like. Ezekiel 36, 26, we read you know, these verses and others in Ezekiel in detail, uh, where he writes, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. 
You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. And then in Zechariah 8, 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. And Jesus, what was the name that was ascribed to him uh, at his birth or before his birth? What was the name that was given to him? Emmanuel, which means... God with us, right? So now this reality will be true. In the prophets, it spoke of, of, of a future time, whether it was a, uh, a restoration, um, I will be your God, but now I will be your God to be able to dwell among you, and you will see that reality of what that looks like. And so not only that is that he will dwell with them, and that um, those that are redeemed will be his people, that that celebration, that Union will be together. Um, what will he do? Let's say in verse 4. Okay. He'll wipe away the tears. Now, it's kind of interesting, like you think, again, as a wedding celebration, um, that it's usually devoid of tears, although they're, you know, usually the tears are happy tears, right, uh, of this celebration and joy. So where do, where do the tears come from? Because he describes even kind of like, the, you know, what, el- what else goes along with that? Suffering, born's world. Yeah. And all those things will be, will be kind of done away with, right? So why do you think there might be tears at this moment? Regret. What's that? Regret, loss. Okay. Regret or loss of, of what? What do you think? People you thought were going to be there that aren't. Um, regret of not having done more with the opportunities you were provided. Uh, things like that. Okay. Okay. I think it would just be just standing before your Savior, recognizing the unworthiness that you have standing before Him. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of those things could probably come into view. And again, you know, the description that John has right before this is of, of judgment. And then we have this view um, of all of, of, of the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. And so with all of these things, I think all of these are, are true. Um, there's no more death. So uh, that will be something that we get to experience. There will be no mourning. What do, what do people mourn? I also think it could just be comfort when I think of a child who is crying and hurt and the mother comes and wipes the tears away and, and comforts the child. It could be related to that as well. Yeah, yeah. And I do think you get that picture. I mean, that's the picture of the image of um, that, that we see here of the strength of Christ and also what, you know, what he's, he's coming to do, right? And so there, there is this, uh, again... What will this look like? You know, we'll, we'll find out. But, again, this is the picture that we're being, you know, that there will be no more mourning. You know, mourning comes when, when there's death. There's no crying. Um, there's a whole lot of different reasons why people cry. What's that? Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, speaking of the resurrection, it's where he says, the perishable will now be imperishable. The, mor- the mortal will now be immortal. And then he says, death is swallowed up. In yeah. Jesus. And I think it's that whole idea you're talking about. Yeah. Death is no, no more. Exactly. Exactly. And so, so all the things that we formerly experienced. Yeah. There's an overwhelming notion of discontent at times. And so in this moment, you're going to be as, you're so utterly fulfilled as that you'll tears of joy. Okay. Yeah. And so we're not, we're not given the reasons, you know, for all of these things. We can only infer um, from the descriptions of what that looks like, right? But there is a promise that is given uh, that comes along with this. As Paul had um, spoken about what the resurrection looks like and the promises that were there as well, there will be no more death, there will be no mourning, there will be no crying, and there will be no pain. And again, if you think about why those things happen, mourning happens with death, why do... Uh, people cry, right? It is either regret, it could be an idea of suffering, it could be physical or emotional. 
The next one, there is no pain, right? Physical, like either emotional pain or physical pain because not only with the new heavens and the new earth, although not spoken about here, but what Paul does speak about is that the perishable becomes imperishable. We will have new bodies, and so there will be no more of the pain that we experience. The things that we just deal with on an everyday life, um, we have, <laughs> it's kind of interesting. My wife and I have been doing kind of a mattress battle. She's been having back pain, so we got a new mattress, and now I have back pain. But I just said, <laughs> so... But honestly, I just said, I don't know, maybe this is my lot. Like, at my age, like, maybe, you know, it's just supposed to be how it is. So I'm waiting for a break-in period. But, <laughs> um, and so I think that we just get used to it. I mean, I just, you know, there's things that I've shared, injuries that you have, and you're like, yeah, it just hurts. You know your knee clicks every time you go upstairs? Yeah, it's just been like that forever. So I kind of tune it out. Like, it might be like, I think for those that anytime somebody says they have had a knee surgery, Usually it was like, why did I wait so long? Because it was, you know, something uh, that they just kind of dealt with and then is now gone. And so there might be, again, tears associated with the fact that, like, I don't have pain anymore. Part of that is obviously through the whole scripture is the devil, the accuser. Yeah. He's no longer. So, because it's, I mean, in Ephesians, our battle is not flesh and blood. So, like, Job, he kept Job with me through the use of the devil. He's not no longer anymore. Since he's the prince of this world, he's not there anymore. Yeah. And a lot of suffering and all that. It's a spiritual, too, a battle, I mean, uh, of good and evil, and uh, not being in the picture anymore. And I think that's, that's my good thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think, too, about, you know, no mourning, no crying, no pain. That's what Adam and Eve experienced. Mm-hmm. That's where they were before they sinned. Before yeah, before chapter three, right? And so then, then after chapter three, they got they got all of it, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And so this is something that that uh, had been spoken of in the in the prophets at Isaiah twenty five eight. Um, you know, kind of. A, hearing language that, that John speaks about here and even what Paul spoke about in 1 Corinthians 15. In 25.8, Isaiah 25.8 says, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord, Lord has spoken. Interestingly, like something similar happened in, in Revelation 7, and um, when John is kind of before the you know, the throne room of God, one of the elders in verse 13 to chapter seven says, then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And John replies, he said, I said to him, sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst nor more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So why does then the Lord want John to share this with us? Because he tells them that he wants them to write, you know, write this down. We'll see that in just a second. But um, why, why is that? Like, what, what's the takeaway for us? Okay. Yeah. So hope and promise. You affirm that, John? <laughs> yeah. Right. And so again, this is the idea that that this this is our home, right? And so while we can experience joy here on earth in the present, we have sorrow and we have pain. And for those, right, in in Revelation chapter seven that experience the tribulation, we understand that their rest is a gift from the Lord. So when we read that, it's kind of like for those that have experienced you know, the tribulation, they're getting the blessings of what that looks like. And we, we, we should embrace that idea for ourselves as well, right? And that even the idea, what were they doing? They were clothed in white, and what were they doing day and night? 
Yeah, worshiping. He says serving the Lord in his temple, right? That would be something like that would be an honor to look forward to. And I think sometimes we occupy our times like, what are we, what are we going to do? And I think there's a lot of, you know, speculation and even like healthy speculation um, that can come out of there. Like, you know, what do we look forward to? What are the things that we could possibly do? But even just in the, the idea of serving the Lord day and night is something that we can look forward to because there is perfect safety and comfort that is found here in this picture, something that we've never experienced fully, that maybe we've gotten glimpses of it, glimpses of it, but not in totality. And so, um, you know, we may come back to this in a little bit. There's other things that I've also wondered too about, you know, knowing that there is a separation. And so we'll probably, you know, there's, there's places again coming up. We can come back to this, but will there, will there be no sorrow at all? Will we ever think about those who were lost? When we think about those who were lost, is there any sort of, you know, um, emotion towards what that looks like? So there will be no more tears or will, you know, or like tears are wiped away. There is no pain, but is that fully taken away? And if there, if, if there are any hints of that, is it also then absorbed in the comfort of the Lord? I don't know the things that, things that I kind of I kind of wonder about. I take I take you know scripture as that this is not what it'll be, but I don't think it's a cold distancing of those again who are lost. And so we'll get to what that looks like um, a little bit later. But that's the picture that we see here. And then moving into to verse five in Revelation twenty one, we read, "And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new." And also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So, what is the purpose of making all things new? Okay, and you have you have similar language when uh, even in in the giving of the new covenant, right? I am I am making a new covenant. I am doing something new, which is borrowing off of something that was old. And this is the idea that even even of making all things new is not a complete um, recreation, as in making of the first earth and the first heavens, but it's a remaking of, um, of what was done. It'll be, you know, burned by fire, but taken again and built to something that is new, something that we, again, will have tied into a little bit of our past experiences, but recreating. And in Isaiah 42, verse 5, Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and I will keep you. And I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open up the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And Paul uses, that again, that similar language that he tells to believers in 2 Corinthians 5, right? He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So this idea again, right, that the things that we have known and understood have been changed for something that is giving way to what God has planned for how things should be for us in the future. We can look back to, you know, the garden and say this is how it it should have been, but what God is doing is something for us, not for Adam and Eve and for those that would have experienced paradise 
if they had not fallen. But this is something that the Lord has for us. And again, to kind of embrace that. And he tells John to write, write this down, right? And he says that several times about his visions. I want you to write this down, which John does. That's how we know that <laughs> about the things that he saw, right? And so if, you t- if he says, I want you to write this down, or I want you to make note of this, what, what does that indicate? Yeah, it's important. I, I, I need you to know that. It's not important for you, John. It's not important for those that you are uh, overseeing um, in the church or churches that you, you oversee. But it's important for all of humanity. And we, we'll see that in just a, a second. So he says, you know, that um, this, this voice, right, from the throne says that uh, he is the Alpha and the Omega. What's the significance of being the Alpha and the Omega. Okay, so the beginning and the end. And the Alpha and the Omega, right, are the first and last uh, letters of the Greek alphabet, would just be like A to Z for us. And so he is the beginning and the end. So the beginning and end of what? Everything. (laughs) And so there's a lot, a lot of depth to right, just that idea. So let's let's you know hear a couple couple verses you know where this idea is kind of thought about um, as as seen elsewhere in Scripture. He says at first in Revelation one eight he says I'm the Alpha and the Omega says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come the Almighty right. So there's this idea of everything uh, has its beginning and has its termination within God right. Christ uh, upholds all things by the word. Uh, of his power, and so we have this understanding, right, the beginning and the end, and even if we see revelation and a new heavens and a new earth, is that the beginning or is that the end? (laughs) So we have the end of one thing, we have the beginning of something else, but we have this idea that there is this eternity, so there will be no end, right? So all things, right, have their beginning and end with within Christ. So we have, again, that, that picture there. In Isaiah 41, verse 4, um, the prophet writes, Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am He. Isaiah 44, 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Right? As far as like any other gods, there are no other gods. I am the one and only. Right? If we're talking about gods, I'm the first and I'm the last. I am the only. And so there's this singularity that also comes within that as well. Like an expansiveness, but also like, again, this defining like, critical um who god is even to say you know let them declare these these so-called gods what is to come and what will happen as far as time god knows all about time everything that will happen that's why the prophets can prophesy the things that will happen because he knows what will happen he is the beginning and end when it comes to those ideas as well and so as the beginning and as the end, as the Alpha and the Omega, the words of Christ are certain. And so, as he says that, again, I want you to write this down. I want you to declare like it's coming from me, the Alpha and the Omega. So, if you're going to hear it from anyone, best hear it from me. He addresses two groups. And so, what's the first group that he gives kind of a, you know, kind of a word of comfort to? Yeah, he says, those that are thirsty. And he offers to give uh, from the spring of the water of life. Where have we heard that idea before? Uh, Lake Turtle from the, from the uh, yeah, she had many husbands. Yeah. So she's at the well, and he draws upon that idea, right, of of, you know, the water that she's getting from this well. And he says, you know... Yeah, so, like, that's, that's good water right there, but I offer you something that's better. And it was a little confusing to her, you know, in what he was saying, right? But he said that those who drink of this living water would never be thirsty again. So, he says, he says he offers this, and he offers this, 
even with a qualification. It's without payment. So what does that mean? It's free, right? And so the gift of, of Christ is free. I mean, all you got to do is give up your own life, carry your, carry your cross. So um, there's other things to say that free does not mean easy, but free is it's offered to all people. And so he, he uses that. Now, why is that, why is that such like an engaging term for those that are thirsty? <laughs> I guess no one wants to give himself to that. I mean, they want free will, and I guess giving that yourself to Christ, uh, I think. If you're thirsty, you got to have satiation. Satiation. Right? Yeah. And this is a thirst can't be alleviated by any other way than what's being offered here. Right, and it's, it's something that everybody needs, right? Everybody has probably at one time experienced. And when you know that you are thirsty, then you understand how vitally important and how life-giving just water is which seems very simple, <laughs> right? And so it's it again, can resonate within us, but we have to understand that we are thirsty and that we need what Christ can give us. Um, so he says, those that are thirsty, and he kind of then even gives kind of an understand, you know, qualification of the one who conquers. He says, I will be his God and he will be my son. And so it changes a little bit, uh, even the language before that, I will be their God and I will dwell among my people, right? To now I will be his God and he will be my son. This was something that was promised to David's offspring as well. But the language is much more personal, right? And so we have this, this again, idea that draws us into the relationship with Christ of who we need and who we uh, will give us. Um, satisfaction. And for those who conquer, you know, being the Son of God provides a place of comfort and a place of security. As for the other group, how is the other group described? There's all of these, again, lists of, of uh, words that describe those who don't thirst for Christ. They are cowardly, those who are prone to fear, right? Those who don't want to commit to Christ, but what is easy and safe and ultimately leading to one's downfall. Interesting word, not usually uh, in the list of other words, but those that John says uh, or, or the Lord says are cowardly. Those who are faithless. So that is a word for one who does not believe. So those who choose the comforts of the world over the comforts of Christ. Those who are detestable, something that is utterly offensible. So those who are polluted by the world. We're seeing that within our midst. We see that in the headlines and the things that we read. Um, just even more so, uh, day by day, just the things that you know, we see, like how do, you know, why do people love Things that are detestable, even amongst those that are, you know, in, in uh, those that are common. He goes further. He says murderers. Murderers are always on that list. We'll be on a list later on in, in Revelation, so we'll see that again. But those who are willing to take a life for their own desires. The sexually immoral, again, see that on, on many of the lists, putting their fleshly desires over what's commanded by the Lord. We see sorcerers. Um, interestingly, that word is pharmacoas, which is, uh, you know, we get our, our words for pharmacy. So some would say that it's those that would, uh, use drugs in their practice of their craft of consulting other gods. Um, so you can make of that what, what you want. And as far as like a, a more modern, um, analogy, uh, not quite 
applied to the whole pharmaceutical industry. But interesting that that um, that word has that uh, that link to uh, those that are translated as sorcerers, idolaters, those who worship other gods, and finally liars. Right. So those who exchange God's truth for something else. And so that kind of brings to mind the assertion that those who are worshiping the world has exchanged the truth of God for a lie, you know, from Romans 1. So all of those will be in the lake of fire. Now, why do you think he kind of spelled out, gave a list of those people, instead of just saying those who don't follow Christ or those who are unbelievers or those who are not worthy, or just kind of lump them into like a group as he did those who are thirsty? No misunderstanding. No misunderstanding. Yeah. And so perhaps, yeah. In the context that I'm in, Alpha and the Omega, you know, the world's an unjust place. Like, I get, people use the word fair all the time. Fairness and justice are not the same thing. Yeah. And so the only person who actually has the ability to be just, just the world, you know, the rest of us are kind of biased, you know. (laughs) And so, but the, so, just putting that all that into that context of, and he's kind of beyond that, providing illustrations in which I well understand you know, his meaning a little bit. I think. And I think for a lot is is if if you don't find um, if you don't thirst after God, and if you don't uh, f- you know if you can't declare you are one who has conquered through Christ, you could almost go to that list and say, okay, well, which one of those do you? Would you say you are? Um, I mean, you might say, well, I'm not a murderer, and uh, I'm not a sorcerer, but, you know, you, you can find something in there, right, of what you can, uh, you can put your finger on. And he, he doesn't mince words, right? What will their lot be? Right, what, what happens with their portion will be where? Yeah. Lake of fire. And he even gives a description this time, you know, which wasn't given before, that burns with fire and sulfur, but repeats, and this is the second death. This is the second death. So again, John, I want you to write these words. For those that thirst, there's comfort, and there's protection and security. So have that as your where your mind goes. And for everyone else, I want, this is a warning for you. This won't be the last warning, but... Again, even as, as John's wrapping up and the Lord's wrapping up kind of the visions of what our future looks like, there's still a warning for those that choose to follow their own way and not the way of the Lord. And so we get a description. We'll, we'll get these uh, next few verses uh, briefly. Verse 9 in Revelation 21, we read, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and the gates, 12 angels and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates and on the west, three gates and the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the lamb. So we see, you know, an angel that is referred to, right? So one of seven angels. And so, you know, it's, it's possible or likely, right, that this, that this is an angel. If you go back to Revelation 17, 1, that, that John is brought somewhere to see this city. Well, he's brought somewhere earlier in Revelation 17, 1, we read, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, 
with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns, and goes on to a description of what this woman, who this woman is. And then later we'll speak of seeing the city Babylon, and the fall and the downfall and destruction of Babylon, and what that looks like. So you have almost kind of like a contrast of John seeing this one city that has been destroyed, um, as the Lord had kind of deemed it at the end of you know this tribulation, and then now kind of this angel, whether it's the same one of the seven or another one of the seven, but from the same group, takes him to a mountain to see this city of God. And so we see the, the bride, right, is described. And the bride is now this holy city and given a name, Jerusalem. And so what, how, is, how is that a change in the understanding of, you know, throughout Revelation? Who is the, who is the bride usually spoken of in the Old Testament? Well, yeah, so yeah, God would be the, the groom, but we have Israel as kind of the bride. Now, in the, in the New Testament, who's the bride usually s- spoken of? Right, the church. And so now the bride is this, this holy city. And so, again, we've talked about kind of different views on, on how, what people think as far as um, of... <laughs> of the church and Israel and their understanding I believe that they're, they're separate, but, but now there is no kind of misunderstanding. It's the, the Holy city is the bride and, and not just the city itself, but we have an understanding of those who will dwell within the city, uh, is the bride of the Lord. And so what do we see that the, the first description of this city is what, it, what does it have that marked about it? What's that? Okay, well, he's on a high mountain, right? And we see it, so the beginning of verse 11. Well, it shone the glory of God, which was like a brilliance of a very costly stone. Okay. So this idea, right, the glory of God is on this city. And that's something that's been missing on Jerusalem for uh, quite a long time. We'll get to that in, in just a second. Um, but I want us to kind of see what that looks like. But that, that glory is described, um, well, the, the glory of, of the Lord, just for the sake of time, left. And you can see it kind of leaving in stages in Ezekiel 10 and 11 that the glory of the Lord kind of was outside the city and then outside, you know, above the city and then outside the city and then has kind of departed the city. Or the term, have you guys heard of the term Ichabod? That, which means the glory has departed, is what a description was of, of the city, that the glory of the Lord had departed. But here in this city, the glory of the Lord is on this city. And how it's described, as Randy said, is that this rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. So again, this white, you know, again, not white, but brighter than white, clear and radiant, maybe like a diamond, but he describes it as a crystal. So we have something in our mind of what this city looks like. And there's certain descriptions about what this city has. What, what is around this city in verse 12? I was wondering the wall they created, the wall. Because both the time in the Old Testament that uh, Israel will be in peace without the walls. I don't know. I don't know. That is one of those things. That, like I, I question that as well, right? A wall is usually for security. So what is a wall? But we'll see what like the wall contains. So more is, is it something that you know? Again, like when we see a city, we expe- expect a wall, or you know what that what that looks like. Um, especially, you know, says that there's a high wall. Uh, so what is the purpose of the high wall? And we'll maybe you know, think about that a little bit later because we'll get into a little more details on the gates and, and kind of the physical description a little bit, a little bit later. 
We see a high wall, though. We see 12 gates, right? These gates are allowing people to, to enter the city. There's 12 angels at each gate. Again, what's the angels for? They're not there for protection. Last time we see an angel guarding, you know, an entrance somewhere, it was, it was at the garden. Um, and so that was to keep, you know, people from, from entering into the garden. Uh, and in, in, on each of, you know, at each of the gates is the names of each tribe of Israel. And then three gates on each side. So if you picture a square, rectangle, kind of that, again, that configuration is what we see. We'll get, we'll get a little bit more description later. So we'll get into that in just, just, uh, in another time. And so what do we see about the wall? That there's 12 foundations. So they've got these kind of large foundation stones that are supporting this wall. Interesting. There's a kind of allusion in Hebrews 11, 9. We read that by faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Interesting kind of that description that they lived in tents, but sometime, at some point they would be in a city that has foundations. And on the foundations, uh, these stones, we would see that the names of the 12 apostles are uh, written. So why these reminders of the 12 uh, apostles and the 12 tribes? Um, of Israel. So the one that they, they claim that the name of Jesus. Okay, so that could be true, but you could have individuals, right? And so, what's what's distinctive about these two groups? Trusted to Jewish people. Okay, say trusted with God's truth. What else? Well, they used uh, Israel for for to proclaim the God they serve. And the twelve apostles that proclaim the Son, Jesus of God, and who He is, and He is saved through, through Him. Yeah. I think it's both the same, but one is as the God of creation, and one is the Son. And, uh... and and you know, just I mean, plainly, right? The twelve tribes is, is all of Israel, and the twelve apostles, right, or who you know, the foundation of the church. And so you've got this, again, idea of um, all of God's history, everything that God had pointed to, everything God had prophesied to, right, is being um, echoed in this new city uh, of a description. And so it was God's plan at the beginning and now coming to fruition um, here, John seeing that, right? And so we look and we kind of see this transition from the second death to what the second life, you know, if we want to call it that, looks like and uh, g- get a glimpse of, again, what awaits us in the future in eternity. And, and hopefully, you know, as we start to walk through some of this, it helps us to kind of draw our attention from the things that we experience now and gives us a picture of the things that we'll experience later on in heaven. But again, the pictures that we see of wiping away the tears of God walking with, them, with, with us being our God and we being his people, even serving the Lord, all of those pictures, again, are that idea of the fact that like our security, our hope, and our comfort is in the Lord. We have that now in Christ, so we can dwell securely in that. We'll experience it fully and physically at some point in the future. And uh, for that, we'll just have to wait. But we'll get a little bit more of the details in the weeks to come. All right, we'll stop there. Is any uh, 